Thank you, Brenda, very much indeed. Good morning, everybody. And uh, thanks to Elias and also to Amiel for sharing their Christian journey with us this morning in Family Focus. That is what Family Focus should be really all about, that we share our our journey, our struggles, our joys uh, with one another so that we can be encouraged and we can pray intelligently for one another. So thank you, brothers, both for doing that. Good. Well, I hope you've got Joshua chapter 6 open in front of you. There is a question sheet this week, even though uh, Wednesday will in fact be our monthly prayer meeting. Can I encourage you to do the study as normal, maybe get together with a brother or a sister and work through the passage so that you keep on track with where we're going in this marvellous book. Well, let's ask for God's help as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the book of Joshua, we thank you for what you have already been teaching us and we pray this morning that your word would be our rule and guide, your Holy Spirit on Pentecost Sunday would be our teacher and we pray that your glory would be our supreme concern and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Lieutenant Colonel Farris Kirkland was the Professor of Military Science at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, He said that the most exciting lecture that he ever heard was on the military tactics of a general from ancient times. Uh, The lecturer was actually only a visitor to the class, he wasn't even a regular teacher. But he held all of the students spellbound as he described this man's brilliant strategy. Uh, A sudden strike right into the heart of enemy territory, dividing the enemy forces in two, and then brilliant campaigns to the north and then to the south of the country. And he went on to praise the general's tactics in psychological warfare, uh, the elements of speed, surprise, and terror. Who on earth was this military genius from ancient times? Well, some of the students in class said, well, Alexander the Great. Others said Napoleon, which just goes to show they don't know what ancient really means. Others said Julius Caesar. Others said Attila the Hun. They were all wrong because the man that he was referring to was Joshua. And that idea, I think, of Joshua as the great military genius is the message, isn't it, of the famous spiritual that most of us sang in Sunday school. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Marvellous song, catchy tune, but is it right? Is that actually what happened? Here's a a very different opinion on Joshua chapter 6. Quote, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. This text in particular is remarkable for the bloodthirsty massacre it records and the racist relish with which it does so. As such, it is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacres of the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs. 
End quote. What about that? Is that right? Now, many people would say that it is. Joshua 6, of course, is one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. And yet here we have two very different interpretations of it. Both of them are deeply emotive, highly subjective. Which is right? Are either of them right? Well, the place, of course, where we find God's perspective is in the text itself. Because, you see, the Bible never simply tells us the events, just what happened. It also tells us how we should understand and respond to those events. And so, it's right that we look at the witness of the text on its own merits before we engage with the critics. And when we do that, we find that Joshua 6 is teaching us three fantastic truths about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to say right at the very beginning that these, these aren't abstract ideas for you and I to admire at a distance. No, they are life-changing realities worked out on the stage of human history. And because God doesn't change, these great realities recorded in Joshua 6 are there for our encouragement and our perseverance as the people of God today. So, the first of these great realities is God's unstoppable power. You'll find that on the outline on the inside of the bulletin. God's unstoppable power. Now, one of the first things that every new Christian learns is that God gives his people many wonderful promises. Uh, these promises are given to build faith and stability into our lives. But ordinary human experience tells us, doesn't it, that there's a world of difference between making a promise and keeping it. So, when someone makes a promise to us, the initial thrill is often dampened by the memory of other promises that were made, but never kept. But you see, that's not how it is with God. The story of Jericho is here to teach us that when God makes a promise, he doesn't just have good intentions towards us. No, unlike us, God has the power to keep every single one of those promises. Now that's the main point of the passage this morning and for that reason we're going to be spending most of our time on it. This, of course, is the first battle story as Israel begins to take the land. And the way that the story is told makes it crystal clear that the only one deserving any credit for the victory is God himself. Because even though this chapter is often described as the Battle of Jericho, I'm sure you noticed there isn't actually a battle at all. The walls of the city come down 
without any military activity whatsoever. So this isn't a story of swashbuckling military courage and human resolve. No, it's the story of the unstoppable power of Almighty God working for his people to deliver his promises. And I think there are four C's in the text that make the point. Glance back with me, if you will, to chapter 5, verse 13. Now, I know that we looked briefly at this last week, but we do need to look at it again this morning because the chapter division at the end of chapter 5 is not especially helpful. You see, what happens at the end of chapter 5 is vital for a proper understanding of everything that happens in chapter 6. Chapter 5, verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. So, the first important C in the text is the commander of the Lord's army. And of course, it's not Joshua. Rather, as we saw last week, it's the angel of the Lord. And since last week I've discovered that there are only two other places in the Bible where you find the angel of the Lord with a sword in his hand. You don't need to look them up now if you want to chase up the references. They're Numbers 22 and 1 Chronicles 21. But I mention them both this morning because on both occasions the drawn sword in the, in the hand of God's angel signifies God coming in judgment. And here, the angel of the Lord has come as commander of the army of the Lord to fight, to fight on behalf of God's people against their enemies. So you see, right at the very beginning of the story, it's clear that Jericho is not going to be taken by normal military methods. It's going to be taken by the power of God alone. God has come to give the people the land that he promised and he's coming in judgment. And that brings us to the second C in the chapter which is confidence. Joshua chapter 6 is filled with confidence for the people of God. God wants his people to be confident of the victory. Just look at chapter 6 verse 2. The Lord says to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. So notice, will you, that the Lord doesn't say, well, I'll have a go. I'll do my best. Um, let's see what happens. No, it's already done. 
I have already delivered Jericho into your hands. So God announces the outcome before anybody lifts a finger. And Joshua then passes on this marvellous message to the people in verse 16 to boost their confidence. He says, the seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now I'm sure that uh, you know perfectly well that your ability to keep your promises is limited by the amount of power that you have. That's a lesson that most politicians never seem to learn. But when you and I make a promise, the reality is that if something does happen that's outside our control, yes, we'll do our best. But we may not be able to keep our word every time. We might wish that circumstances were always under our control, but when we make a promise, perhaps to our children or whoever it is, we we want to always keep it. But life isn't like that. And so sometimes we do break our promises, even if we hate doing so. But you see, Joshua chapter 6 is showing us that we can have complete and utter confidence in the promises of Almighty God because he is in control of everything, all the time. His power is greater than every other power in the world. So whenever God makes a promise, it is guaranteed by his unstoppable power. Confidence. Observe too the ceremony that dominates the chapter. You see, imagine for a moment the filmmaker uh, trying to make a blockbuster out of Joshua chapter 6. He would have something of a challenge, wouldn't he, as to where to place the emphasis. I mean, if you were shooting the film, where would you put the emphasis? rather interesting this, you see, because the writer of Joshua devotes a huge amount of space, all the way from verse 6 to verse 19, to an elaborate procession. A procession that marches around the city every day for a week. He gives almost no space to the fall of Jericho itself. Now, from a box office point of view, that's rather disappointing because people don't go to the cinema to watch religious ceremonies. And you know what? It wasn't even a very long procession around the city because Jericho wasn't a city like Cape Town or like London. The archaeologists tell us that it wasn't really much more than a fortress. The total circumference of Jericho was no more than 600 metres. So you could walk around it in under 20 minutes without breaking uh, into a sweat. So what's this ceremony actually all about? Well, the writer, you see, wants us to picture in our minds 
A great column of people with Israel's fighting men divided between the front and the rear of the column. And as they march, there is total silence. Now why is that? Well, the reason is, you see, that they're not really there as warriors. They're actually there as spectators. They're there to watch God at work. The only noise in the procession comes from seven priests, each one carrying a trumpet, which they blow continually as the group marches round the city. But even they aren't all that important. No, their, their function is simply to draw attention to the little box that was right at the heart of the procession. Those people looking out from the walls of Jericho, that's all they would have seen, that strange little box in the middle of the long procession. Of course, you and I know it's no ordinary box. This is the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, symbolising the presence of God in the midst of his people. So the picture you see is of the presence of God in the middle of the procession and right in the middle of everything that happens during that extraordinary week, the ceremony. But then there is one more C in the text. It's the word collapse. And you'll find it in verses 5 and 20. Now, in those days, um, sieges typically lasted a very long time indeed. The siege of Jerusalem in 587 BC lasted 18 months. The siege of Tyre by Nebuchadnezzar seems to have lasted 13 years. And that's because in those days, they knew how to build walls that could keep the enemy out. But the siege of Jericho, yeah, well, that was just a week. What an amazing week it was. The events of day one are recorded for us in the text in great detail. The events of day two, a little more briefly. Days three to six pass by in just a few words. And so we come to day seven. And on that day, they march around the city, not once, but seven times. And you see, all these number sevens in the text are there to highlight the perfection and the completeness of God's victory. It's the victory that's described in verse 16 and following, if you'd like to follow it with me. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Continuing in verse 20. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. 
Now the phrase, uh, the wall collapsed, is a very interesting phrase. If you've got an ESV Bible, uh, the footnote tells you that a literal translation is that the wall of the city fell under itself. Now listen to this. What that's saying is that the wall collapsed from pressure exerted from above rather than from outside. In other words, the idea is of a great unseen hand coming down on the walls of the city and all of a sudden the walls aren't there anymore. So that's the main message of the chapter. God's unstoppable power gives God's people their first victory in the land God promised. So it means, doesn't it, that the old spiritual wasn't quite right. That Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. God did. And it's not hard, is it, for us to imagine the tremendous confidence that the people of God must have had as they contemplated the rest of the conquest in the promised land. They must have been saying to themselves, goodness me, if this God is for us, well, who can possibly be against us? Well, as always in the book of Joshua, it's right that we apply it first to the church before we apply it to our own lives individually. Because in the first instance, Joshua is a book about God's purposes for his people as a whole before it is a book about my own Christian life. So I want to begin uh, today by reflecting with you for a moment on how easy it is for us as a group of Christians to lose our confidence in God. In churches uh, throughout South Africa today, many Christians are praying not only for rain, but also for the refreshing showers of revival. Uh, that's what Angus Buchan's great prayer meeting in Bloemfontein was about a month ago, isn't it? It was about praying for revival. But Christians are feeling, I think, increasingly powerless to do anything about the rising tide of paganism that is gradually silencing the voice of Christians in our culture. And even if the pagan lobby is not as loud here as it is elsewhere, nevertheless, it hasn't stopped the authorities from listening to their voice and deciding that they want to keep the Lord Jesus and his truth out of public life. So, very slowly over the years, they've been instructing us in the church to privatise our faith. And bit by bit, we Christians have taken the hint. They've told us uh, that God should be kept out of government and out of legislation, and Christians have said, OK. They've told us that the truth of Jesus must be kept out of schools, and we've said, 
okay. And now they're telling us to keep God out of marriage and out of the family as Cape Town competes with Los Angeles to become the gay capital of the world. And in the face of this this growing pagan onslaught, it's very easy, isn't it, for the church to shrink back from doing God's work and from contending for the honour of his name. Now, we mustn't do that. But, you know, one of the great lessons from this marvellous chapter is that we don't actually need to do that. Why not? Well, keep a finger in uh, Joshua 6 and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, which has a very helpful comment on this. Hebrews chapter 11, page 856. Hebrews 11, page 856, I think it's the right-hand column. You see, if we ask the question, how were the walls of Jericho demolished? Well, we would say, wouldn't we? Well, God did it, and that would be quite right. But Hebrews 11, verse 30, gives us the other side of the same coin. Because it says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. Now think about this. Even though God's people faced a city that was tightly shut up, Joshua 6 verse 1, and even though the city was defended by a fearsome king with a well-trained army, the people of God heard what God wanted them to do and they did it. They simply obeyed. What they were asked to do wasn't especially difficult. It was rather strange perhaps, but it wasn't difficult. And they didn't say, well, you know, let's build a battering ram just in case God has made a mistake about this. No, no, they they knew what God had told them to do. They did their part in obedience and God kept his promise perfectly. Now that's the faith that Joshua 6 is wanting to build into you and me. The faith that simply gets on with serving God in his world doing what he gives us to do and trusting God to keep his promises. Because no enemy, however powerful, can ever stop God from keeping his promises. The River Jordan couldn't do it. The walls of Jericho couldn't do it. Aggressive paganism can't do it. Political correctness can't do it. Militant Islam can't do it. None of these things can ever frustrate God's purposes because our God has unstoppable power which ensures 
that none of his promises will ever fail. Every promise will be fulfilled. And now we've got the sort of collective corporate application clear in our mind, I think we're in a slightly better position to see the individual application. Because the battles that we face in our own Christian lives aren't only the battles in the public square. There are our own personal struggles against the world and the flesh and the devil. They're spiritual struggles but they're just as deadly and difficult as Jericho. I don't know whether you're going to agree with me, but I think it's very significant that when the Apostle Peter is speaking about the devil, you know, he doesn't compare him to a bunny rabbit uh, or to a goldfish. No, he compares the devil to a roaring lion who's always on the prowl always looking for someone to devour. He's not an enemy that ever goes on holiday or sleeps at night or gives us a break when we're feeling exhausted and at our most frazzled. He's an enemy with real power and he's never far away. But you see, the wonderful personal encouragement of Joshua chapter 6 is that whether I'm dealing with a personal struggle that is immediate and incredibly intense or one that's long-term and just plain exhausting, the God of Jericho, the God of unstoppable power, is still at work in and for every one of his people today. And the one who is in us is far greater than he who is in the world. And he's, he's willing to help us live the Christian life victoriously if only we, we will trust and obey the commander of the Lord's army. God's unstoppable power. That's our main point. But in the last few minutes, please will you also notice God's unnatural patience. God's unnatural patience. Of course, you know perfectly well the popular image that many people have in their minds of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But that picture, of course, is nowhere to be found in Joshua chapter 6 there are some hard things here that, well, many Christians never manage to square with the Jesus of the New Testament. For example, come with me again to verse 16, the seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city, And the city and all that is in it, verse 17, are to be devoted to the Lord. Verse 21, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, 
cattle, sheep and donkeys. Now that phrase, devoted to the Lord, uh, translates just one word in the original language. It's the word herem, herem. And it appears 80 times in the Old Testament as a whole. 27 of those times are in the book of Joshua. And Herem speaks of something or someone that is totally dedicated, totally given over to the Lord. And it can be used either positively or negatively. So, for example, uh, an article in the temple can be devoted to the Lord in the sense that it's been kind of set aside for the exclusive use in worship. It can never be used for anything else. Negatively, here, a city of God's enemies might be handed over to God for total destruction. Now, as I said at the beginning, this has caused outrage uh, amongst God's critics. There's interestingly no defence or explanation given of this in Joshua 6, and the reason for that is because God has already explained his purpose for doing it in earlier books of the Bible. Uh, We haven't got time to chase all the references down now, but you'll find them on the inside of the question sheet and you might like to look them up afterwards. But in those other texts, we find two main reasons given for the harem. The first is the just, just punishment of sin. See, we mustn't fall into the trap of thinking that the Canaanites were essentially pleasant people, uh, full of good works, giving money to the poor, helping old ladies across the road, and just the occasional blemish here and there. No, they were evil beyond anything that we might imagine today. So if you do look up the references in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, the picture we're given is of a people who were persistently and shockingly degenerate. Uh, Specifically, they were guilty of the most extreme forms of sexual depravity, including incest and bestiality. Perhaps most sickening of all was their regular practice of burning their own children alive as an offering to their gods. Now let's think about this. Um, You know, the abuse of children here in South Africa is well documented. It's a real problem. Not only verbal abuse, but physical abuse as well. That's bad enough. But burning a child alive and enjoying it, and apparently they did, Now, if you knew that your neighbours were doing that, wouldn't you want them to to face justice and to be punished? So justice is not lacking in God's treatment of Jericho. One writer puts it like this. This is not a story of a bunch of land-hungry marauders wiping out hundreds of innocent God-fearing folks. 
in the biblical view, the God of the Bible uses none too righteous Israel as the instrument of his just judgment on a people who had persistently revelled in their iniquity. End quote. So that's the first reason, the just punishment of sin. But the second reason is God's concern for the spiritual protection of his people. Because he knows us. He knows what frail creatures we are. And so he orders the destruction of the Canaanites so that future generations of Israelites won't become infected by their depravity. So there is no lack of justice here. But what I also want you to notice is that there is no lack of patience either. You see, the people of Jericho had had plenty of time to repent. It's rather interesting back in chapter 5 and verse 14 that the angel of the Lord says, as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. In other words, I could have come sooner with my sword in my hands, but I didn't, because I didn't want any of these people to perish, but all of them to come to repentance. Remember, will you, that God first announced his plan to give the land to Israel 400 years before. Very remarkably, God watched generation after generation of Canaanites turn their backs on him and burn their own children. And yet still, in his patience, he held back his anger. Decade after decade, he waited. He gave them every possible opportunity to repent. But instead of turning they only plunge deeper and deeper into evil. And to make matters worse, the people of Jericho actually knew that God's judgment was coming. They'd already heard that everything that God had done for Israel in bringing them from Egypt to the walls of the city. They knew all about his unstoppable power. But rather than turning back, they chose to go on defying him. Now let me ask you this morning, how long is your fuse? I mean, when somebody openly defies you or hurts somebody you love, how long is it before you give expression to your anger? Four seconds? Four minutes? Four days? You see, when I put it like that, who on earth are we to question God who waited 400 years before judging a thoroughly rotten people? I mean, I think 400 years is supernatural patience, isn't it? One writer says, this wasn't injustice, but the highest and most patient justice. 
Now I'm sure that somebody here this morning or maybe listening on the internet might be thinking, well, you know, this is typical of the God of the Old Testament, but Jesus wasn't like that. But that simply means they don't know Jesus. The New Testament shows us quite plainly that the agony of Jericho was as nothing compared to the fate of those who turn their back on Jesus. Because Jesus himself speaks about hell as a place of eternal weeping, a place whose inhabitants will experience the fury of Almighty God forever and ever. Friends, it is a terrible thing to fall unprepared into the hands of the living God. But I want to close by highlighting one last and I think very precious thing in the text, which is God's undeserved kindness. Somebody's done some work on the original Hebrew text and worked out that... um, The writer uses 102 words to describe the fall of Jericho and he uses 86 words to describe the salvation of Rahab and her family. Almost the same word count. And that's because he wants to give us a balanced picture. Now I find this very interesting because you see in many ways... Rahab was just like every other Canaanite. There is nothing in the book at all to suggest that she wasn't totally immersed in all of their evil practices and all of their evil behaviour. As a prostitute, her profession kind of fanned the flames of the depravity that brought destruction on the whole city. So she was no different from all the rest except for one thing. When she heard about the power of the living God she didn't just listen. She responded. She trusted God. She put her life in his hands. So you can imagine, can't you, the scene that we spoke about in that film a moment ago when the walls come crashing down but there's just one house on the city wall left standing. And as the dust cloud settles, the the camera zooms in and two young men emerge from the rubble bringing out, well, not just Rahab, but also her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. Now why? Well, because when she heard of God's coming judgment, Rahab warned them. She said, judgment's coming. His mighty power is certainly going to deliver Canaan into the hands of his people. So come to the place of safety while there's still time. And so, verse 25, the whole city was destroyed, but Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men that Joshua sent as spies to Jericho 
and she lives among the Israelites to this day. And I suppose in most action films, the, the hero emerges from the rubble carrying an innocent victim. That's, that's the normal form, isn't it? Uh, it might be the woman that he loves, it might be an innocent child, uh, but the person being saved is nearly always somebody likeable and lovely and, uh, and our hearts go out to them. And we think, isn't it marvellous that they're getting a second chance? Well, I'm not so sure that Rahab was either likeable or lovely. And yet, because she put her trust in God, when judgment fell, she was saved alive. Friends, whenever you're reading Joshua 6, don't miss what God does for Rahab. So there you have it, three great truths about God in this great chapter. His unstoppable power, his unnatural patience, his undeserved kindness. Friends, it is indeed a terrible, terrible thing to be one of God's enemies. You can't read Joshua 6 and miss that. But to know his undeserved kindness, as Rahab did, to know that on the cross, Jesus satisfied God's justice on my behalf, and that now God's power is not at work against me, but at work for me, well, that really is a wonderful thing, isn't it? You see, it liberates us, doesn't it, to serve God, to love one another, and to stand strong in all our battles against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's why the psalmist says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Well, our gracious, loving, heavenly Father, we, we thank you for preserving the historical account of you fulfilling your promise to your people by unstoppable power. Father, as we reflect on this great chapter, please increase our confidence in all the wonderful promises that you have made to us so that as we face the many forbidding strongholds in our culture and in our own hearts, we will press on in obedience to your word, knowing that the victory has already been won by Jesus. And we also ask that we take most seriously this great reminder that one day you will totally destroy all your enemies and all those who refuse to repent. 
And so like Rahab, may we warn everyone to flee to the place of safety before it is too late. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.